Morning, Mario. How you doing? Good, Scott. How are you? Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Sound good, me. How are you today, Scott? Yeah, it's been a, as you know, it's been kind of a rough week, but doing pretty good today. You're speaking to me today, so things are going to only get up from here. Yeah, I know. Ran is uh, traveling to Dubai Do more today. more good news. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Ryan is, Ryan is not here. I'm here. Simon is here. William All and Matthew news. are here. Your favorite, your favorite speaker, Matthew, is here as well. Come on, so, you, can't, yeah, you can't ask that, for a better That is day. true. He is my favorite. Simon, Simon, and Simon's here on the day that we're starting to get some actual bankruptcy resolution, which has been his like, lifeblood and breath for the past seemingly years. So uh, I'm sure that... Uh, yeah, and time didn't we even just say the other day? You said, "Hey, we'll we'll do that update soon." So maybe uh, today will be a great day, I think, for that, since it is our uh, title title here uh, for sure. So that, that I'm excited to hear about that. I think a lot of closure for for um, for creditors of both Celsius and and FTX. Ironically, Simon, I think it's kind of interesting that because it dragged on so much and the market got so much better, it actually, even with all the fees, probably ended up a, a fa- more favorable outcome, right? Well, um, that depends if you value your wealth in crypto or fiat. So um, it's a bit of a scam, really. Well, it's a huge scam if you value it in crypto, obviously. I mean, as people might not know, but FTX creditors are getting the headline, right? Full payback, but it's full payback in dollars based on the value of your crypto when they declared bankruptcy, which is like $16,000 Bitcoin or something, right? Yes. Was sixteen thousand dollars Bitcoin when they declared bankruptcy? Yeah, because remember they crashed the market. I mean, that was literally the bottom. It was sub twenty. I don't know the exact number. I don't want to quote it wrong, but yeah. Um, so yeah, you're getting paid back in quote unquote full based on the value then. But I will say, you know, listen, everyone knows at this point, I'm a Voy- was a Voyager and a Voyager creditor, and we got paid thirty percent of the you value got from July, right? So this is three times better than that. And then Voyager, of course, liquidated all their assets on every possible market dip. So maybe, worst, maybe worst Zach, dip. Zach, you, you were kind of we covered it very briefly yesterday because the news broke while we were on the space. But can you give us kind of a general overview of, of the uh, of the news yesterday regarding FTX? Yeah. So and then maybe address address any misconceptions as well. No, I mean I think Scott's got it mostly right. Right, there's been someone who's been in charge of clawing back as many assets as possible from FTX liquidating their investments, both crypto, which we saw uh, in the first week of the ETF, we saw them dump a lot of their grayscale position uh, and private market positions, right? They had this AI investment that did incredibly well, um, which is largely responsible for how they're able to make creditors whole. And, you know, they're taking a snapshot of the value of depositors assets of the, as of sort of the, the bankruptcy, which was the bottom of the market. And they're making people whole as of that time. Yeah, when you look at uh, that, uh, the uh, that investment, of course, Solana up massively, and they were able to actually convert GBTC from a discount to you know uh, the actual value, uh, net asset value when that closed. We saw very quickly that uh, FTX had sold a billion dollars in GBTC, and that's a huge part of that as well. Just really speaks to, I guess, the difference between what uh, lawyers and entities you have controlling the bankruptcy and then just sheer timing. You know, go ahead, Simon. Yeah, no, this really cannot be framed as good news. Um, I, I need to help everyone understand the severity of the scam. So imagine you have Bitcoin at FTX. Uh, they lock you in at the bottom of the market and say, now you don't have any Bitcoin you have a dollar claim. So if you had a Bitcoin, you're now entitled to $17,000, right? So Bitcoin goes up and then they can sell some of those Bitcoins and pay you back $17,000. In that process, the lawyers spend between 350 million and a billion dollars of creditors' money, client funds. So they're doing exactly what SBF does, but legally, because the US government has signed off that this is legal to spend client money. And then any upside that your money was used in order to purchase is given to shareholders. And so the next subordinated creditor in line is actually probably the IRS. So the US. Well, I'm sorry, court, nothing's being given to shareholders. Shareholders are going to zero. 
Well, it depends if there's um, what's what's in between. So it goes once you go to 100%, it goes to the next subordinated class, and then eventually it will get to shareholders if there's no other creditor class in between, depending on how high the assets go. Yeah, I don't. So I would. I would expect to see market, the yeah. shareholders of FTX receiving a penny here. Well, yeah, but that would be if the IRS comes in the middle and takes the rest, right? Who, who's in between shareholders and creditors? If in the event that they try and pay out shareholders, I would expect you know uh, serious lawsuits from the creditors, which which will come. But but it's completely legal because they've already said that there's a bunch of different classes. Um, and the shareholders are going to be in the queue. It's bankruptcy code. It's law. It doesn't matter what the it doesn't matter what the creditors want to sue for. That's actual bankruptcy code. That that's the foundation, the foundational of how uh, company debt structures work. The, so by the bankruptcy process is just a scam in general, Simon. I, I mean, I, I obviously agree with you. I'm just thinking maybe it's because I'm scarred by my own process. But I'm thinking to relative to what the outcome could have been, in that regard, it's good news for the people who are getting back more than they would well, no, what, what doesn't mean that they're getting your, back what they should. What you wanted was your assets, because um, then you can have the whole upside rather than giving the upside to the next coordinated class. Yeah, although, although so you got, maybe your assets Even in Voyager, points. you got your 30% in kind, so you can Yeah, it's, it's a bit to Zach's point. I think you are speaking on behalf of the majority, Simon, but right, what Zach said is that, you know, it, it depends on what assets you are holding. I'm sure there are, I, I could be wrong, but I'm sure there's plenty of coins on there that are down. It's just that the bulk of it is Bitcoin, Ethereum, Solana. Presumably. Right, Zach? I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah, but or, but there's also, I think, a lot of stables on there, right? And so people who had money sitting there in stable coins, they're going to get, you know, 100% of that back. Yeah, I just, it just blows my mind once again. This is from my own personal experience. But, you know, the two guys who are the outright frauds, SBF and Mashinsky, their creditors ended up with a better result than the Voyager bankruptcy case where Steve Ehrlich is... Uh, happily sitting somewhere, I won't say happily, but still in his house, uh, living his life with no sort of claim against him. You know, all he did, all he did is give a really, really terrible loan, presumably. For sure. And one thing you could say about that, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm endorsing this, but like, look, all the money they spent on these sort of top flight lawyers and fiduciaries to make sure they could claw back as much money as possible. Maybe some of that was money well spent because they had this result. Some of it was definitely done for FTX and Celsius. Yeah, I, I agree. That's what I was saying. It really depends on the entity and the lawyers that you had. I mean, if you look at the Voyager committee, they, they approved deals with both Binance and FTX that fell through. That were, you know, right. so you're talking about uh, nine, ten figure, whatever deals, eight, nine figure deals that, that was spent just to do those and have them completely fall through. They could have liquidated assets on day one and people would have gotten. What Celsius is getting now after all this, right? 75 to 77%. No, so again, you, the headlines are so misleading. Um, so today in Celsius, they just released the final numbers. They still managed to uh, make another 600 million disappear from the balance sheet relative to the plan that was actually approved, like just a little rounding error of 600 million. And again, if you get out before 100%, you are significantly better off than if you get out uh, above 100%. So this is not good. This is giving your assets that your money was used to purchase to somebody else, even though it was your assets. Um, and so, again, it's the, it's the illusion of thinking in terms of dollars rather than thinking in, in terms of what actually was leveraged um, and it's an absolute like it's it's just such a slap in the face to creditors to be framed in that way, because if you again if you got out before a hundred percent, you would have received the upside. Now somebody right. else receives the upside. Whoever's next in line, and it was oh, your my, yeah. I, I mean Simon, like I said, I hate to keep going back to Voyager, but we got thirty four percent of the value of our assets in July of that year, which have doubled. Right. So effectively, based on current portfolio value of your th theoretical assets, which is what you're talking about, having the upside, we got 15 percent back, 17 percent. Yeah. But remember, with Voyager, it was just crypto. Right. There was crypto and a loan. With FTX, the client money was used to make all sorts of YOLOs and VC investments and all sorts of things and buy property in Bahamas and all sorts of stuff. 
All of that should be for the benefit of creditors to make up for their crypto loss if they got out before 100%. But the fact that the bankruptcy are using it to settle with all creditors and say, you, you get that much less of your crypto as long as you agree that this is a settlement and then we'll give the upside to everybody else. It's, it's, it's not good news. <laughs> and no political clawbacks. Right. Exactly. So we it's know just that a lot of that money. We know, we know a lot of that money uh, disappeared magically into the ether of the politicians' hands and has not been demanded back. Go ahead, Dave. So first, <clears throat> I want to say something that I almost never say, which is I hundred percent agree with Simon. <laughs> um, the 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 thing that's really fascinating about this, and no one's talking about it, but if we actually had a regulatory regime you know, around, you know, in, in the developed markets, whether the U.S., Europe, et cetera, where it was remotely close to what people think should be, then what would have happened instead of it being in bankruptcy law is client assets would be a client claim on assets. So like when a, if a broker goes bankrupt, I mean, it, it, you're, you're virtually, it's almost impossible to lose your equity. So let's say you, you own, you know, the BlackRock ETF. And you bought it through Schwab, and let's say something horrible happens and Schwab goes bankrupt, and it seems virtually impossible, but it could. Those shares are held in street name, and honestly, wouldn't would be ring fenced away from the bankruptcy court. Now, in this particular case, the the fact is those assets were stolen, and so it would have to be looked at uh, as what was stolen. But the simple fact is that a regulatory regime where client assets were ring fenced would stop this from happening. And the fact that the SEC and Elizabeth Warren and so many other people in the United States have been so anti-regulating crypto because they don't want to legitimize it. The fact is one of the first things you get by an actual regulatory regime is ring fencing of client assets. And that's pretty close to as bipartisan and hard to argue with as possible, but nobody's pointing it out. So Simon's point that people who owned, you know, look, I owned some too. So, you know, Bitcoin, Ether, whatever, are getting screwed in favor of the people who own stables or, or have dollar-based things is absolutely accurate. But it's important to understand that in a proper regulatory regime, this wouldn't happen. Yeah, so important what, what Dave just said. So think about this. The terms of service in FTX, when you deposited at that exchange, SBF had no right to touch that money or Alameda had no right to touch it. Um, and that should have been custody. Now, in the other bankruptcy cases like BlockFi, Celsius um, and Voyager, there were segregated parts that were set up. So we had two settlements. We had those that had funds in custody because the regulators basically came after Mazinski and he set up a, a, a custody service because he didn't have the license to do it people got a much, much higher recovery from those, from the other creditors. Now, in the FTX case, this all should have been custody, which meant that if the lawyers were doing their job, they would have argued that this is property of the estate and therefore it should return to them as the property that they received uh, that was used with those funds. And then all of the upside would have gone to creditors. Now, what they did instead is they found a way of getting out of bankruptcy faster, making people feel good because the price of Bitcoin went up and then we can make them feel 100% whole and then we can give the rest to the next subordinated class. And if the regulators had actually defined this as custody, which it was by terms of service, and the lawyers had actually argued what, what was the case in other cases, rather than just letting them get away with this, um, then it would have been a completely different outcome. And they're just trying to buy you off because they know that. They know that if, if that gets figured out, then everyone would just take their money and run and settle. That's what's happening here. Absolutely. Fred? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I just wanted to add two things, which is I half agree with Simon. It's a total slap in the face to creditors, but it's a huge hug in the chest for the attorneys that were raking in fees over uh, this entire thing. And, you know, that's just the way the bankruptcy code is set up in the U.S. I mean, it's written into the law that attorneys get paid first. But what's more important, I think, and I don't know if you all covered it um, earlier, either last week, but 
this whole news story about FTX being made whole or creditors being made whole comes on the heels of an appellate court reversing the bankruptcy judge saying, hey, when you decided that all the good old boys that were appointed internally on FTX to you know, run through the numbers and make every sure everything checks out, that was totally fine when there were tons of uh, creditors saying, no, this needs to be independent and disinterested. Um, the appeals court said, yeah, that's, that was, that's an easy call. That was one of the easier calls you make on an appeal is that you should have had a disinterested uh, examiner go through all the numbers. And so what's going to happen there? I mean, if they're like, oh, everything's fine, bankruptcy over, creditors are going to be made whole, but you have this appeal decision that just said, no, you need to have somebody else run through the numbers and take a look. Um, that could throw a whole wrench into everything. I'm not, you know, a bankruptcy expert, so I don't know how that's actually going to play out. But you know, that's that's a bigger wrench, I think, that people aren't talking about. Simon, yeah, sorry, um, but that that's also the other part of this. This is the losing battle of it. So let's say that you want to fight it. So the lawyers are spending client money legally in order to fight you then you have to pay the money in order to fight the lawyers that you're now paying twice. And you ain't going to win because they've got the unlimited budget of your money. And so you're spending money that you then have to apply to get back. And those lawyers will fight against you to get your bill paid at the end of it using your money that is in the case. So they know that. So literally, you can just get away with blind murder in these cases. And the, the, the whole process of appealing what you know to be right will cost everybody more than the actual benefit to it. And they know that. It's just such a, it's such a problematic process. Oh, totally, totally agree. James, I saw you had your hand up uh, before. I don't know if it was about this. Yeah, no, it's all right. I was just going to say – I wanted to – I was just going to quickly say, like, I agree with everyone's frustrations, but I mean, this is just, this is the way it it works. This is law. This is the rules of the land. I guess when you do a chapter 11 bankruptcy, things get dollarized. And I mean, if prices went down, um, you would be better off now. But obviously, I I tend to agree with pretty much everything everyone said here. Um, It's just, this is the way things are done and have always been done. And there's not much we can do about it as far as I'm concerned. It, there, is one more part to it. there is one more part to it, which is what Dave said. If the regulations had been set up correctly, then you wouldn't have a dollar claim. You'd have entitlement to your assets. And that is the, that's the, the situation here. And so the lawyers didn't argue that. The UCC should have argued that because um, then you would have entitlement to those assets rather than a claim. So it's not actually just the way bankruptcy works. It's a regulatory failure as well on top. And lawyers should be and lawyers should be arguing or should have argued for that. You can't argue for a regulatory change in court, right? That's no, it's not it's not a regulatory process. change. It's custody. Uh, because in implementing the, the UCC is a regulatory change. No, no. There's what what we're saying here, right? Is because it was meant to be custody. Now, that would have been defined as custody by any normal, regular financial institution. But because these things were illegal banks, then it relied upon the lawyers to argue terms and conditions and substance. And that was argued for the, cus- the custody providers in Celsius. It wasn't argued for the custody in FTX. And so that, that, there's three sets of case law for that already in these bankruptcies because regulators you know, didn't didn't actually have a qualified custodian regime for these crypto businesses, but they argued it through law and terms. Yeah, I just I'm just my point is I think that's the broader problem is we need better qualified custody rules for crypto. I mean, and it goes beyond the entitlement to assets. <clears throat> it's very unclear what a qualified custodian is for crypto. The the normal categories of who gets to be a qualified custodian don't fit neatly into crypto because it's meant for cash and securities like we need functional regulations. And I, I don't remember who was saying it before. The problem is the United States government generally doesn't want to legitimize this industry. And so we don't get those regulations. But I think the, the real problem here is at the regulatory level more than, you know, look, I, I think the liquidators in this case did a pretty decent job clawing back what they could. 
Um, obviously, this is not great. Obviously, it would be a better result to get people back the value of, of their Bitcoin and, and crypto tokens. But, you know, I think that change is really better implemented as policy. Mario, you were, jump, you were jumping in before. I don't know if you had something to ask. Yeah, not about FTX. Can I get your permission to ask another question? <laughs> Thanks, Scott. James, uh, we talked about the ETF yesterday um, and the latest numbers as well. Um, can you just give us an overview? We've got Matthew here as well, and Dave, you were in the space yesterday. Just give us an overview of the performance now. I think we had the first day, the outflows from, essentially the outflows of GBTC are kind of slowing down, and we had the first or second day of net inflows uh, this week. Um, so maybe a quick update on the on the numbers. We also had one of our speakers yesterday, I think it was Juan from Bitwise or someone else, I think it was Juan, who said that we're... Um, the the performance uh, excluding GPTC puts it at the uh, top twenty potentially top ten um, best performing ETFs ever based on the numbers within this uh, time period. Uh, so maybe you got some more uh, insight into this. Yeah, I mean, so we're at four consecutive days of inflows now. So for the that's the spot Bitcoin ETFs overall in the U.S. Um, but there is some like offsetting data to look at. So if you look at the CMA futures market, there. Uh, the open interest in that is like down 31,000 Bitcoin. So you can think of that as a 31,000 outflow, 31,000 Bitcoin outflow. And then if you look internationally um, at crypto ETFs, both in Europe and in Canada, we're over 500 million in outflow. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Net net, the US spot Bitcoin ETFs have taken in about 1.5 billion since they launched on January 11th. Undoubtedly a smashing success. I mean, I've been looking at trading volumes um, flows, spreads, premiums, and discounts. I mean, everything is improving since January 11th. Pretty much every single day is getting better and better. The volume numbers are going down, but they're also getting more disparate. They're getting more evened out, I guess you would say. Uh, for the most part, GBTC was dominating volume, and that's not the case anymore. They are still the, the dominant leader for the most part, but the we have IBIT from BlackRock and FPTC from Fidelity that are kind of catching up. Um, so like from a traditional finance ETF specialist point of view, like this has been an absolute smashing success for pretty much every single one of these issuers. Um, we have, what is it, uh, eight ETFs over $100, $100 million as it is already. Uh, and they're all trading extremely efficiency, efit, efficiently, very low spreads, very minimum premiums and discounts, like pretty much anything you would want in a successful ETF launch, you have it for eight to nine of these things. Um, and even you could even argue for, for all 10 of them. Uh, Matthew, anything else to add on, on the, the performance? And first, I'm not sure if you guys have the numbers on how that compares to other ETF performances. Is, that, is it in the top 20, top 10 of all time? I mean, if you if you take the collective newborn nine, as James and his team refers to them, uh, they're you know it's the fastest ETFs in history to reach a billion dollars, uh, record-breaking performance uh, collectively, right, James? Yeah. So I mean, they did it in two days, uh, but you obviously part of that is some of that money probably came out of GBTC in some regard. Um, that said, even if you even if you don't include the whole group and you just look at two of the ETFs, um, IBIT and FBTC, they are the fourth and fifth fastest that we've ever seen reach a billion dollars. Um, they're nearing in on three billion now. We have IBIT at two point eight, FBTC at two point five, um, and like I said, we have a total of of eight of these guys over a hundred million dollars in assets. Um, so we, it's likely that we'll see that they're, they're not going to be liquidated or closing these things anytime soon, as far as I'm concerned. And the trend is right now that, as you hinted at, GBTC outflows have slowed a little bit. Um, and so have the inflows. But for the most part, the inflows have offset. Like I said, every single day, the inflows to these spot Bitcoin ETFs, the newborn nine, has more than offset the outflows to GBTC or from GBTC. Yeah, I'm just looking at the outflows as a chart here. The outflows are the lowest outflows we've seen uh, except the first day of trading uh, by GPTC. Um, so it's sitting at day 14, sitting at 188 million. So that's uh, yesterday, I guess. Um, I mean, that's a good point that James makes about the open interest coming down, some of the outflows from the European uh, ETFs. But nevertheless, the net flows into these U.S. products are now, you know, taking more than 100 percent of new 
Bitcoin supply, uh, you know, what we don't know is how much of that is is cannibalizing kind of spot buying on on Coinbase. I did see one Bitcoin OG on Twitter who tweeted that he was selling his coins in cold storage and buying the ETF for the for the convenience. I don't know how how common decision that would be, uh, but uh, you know, if, if this pace is continues, then. Bitcoin price is gonna is gonna have to go up at some point because you can see the GPTC outflows are are slowing, um, and it's encouraging that the funding rates have come down. Some of the froth has come out of the system. Uh, we didn't make it to that mid 30s level that everyone had had pinpointed. Uh, we continue to see stablecoin market cap growing. That represents buying power for Bitcoin, Ethereum. Um, stablecoin market caps up 10 billion in the last three months. Most of that's Tether, but I noticed uh, a Japanese publicly traded fintech company, GMO, just announced two Solana-based stablecoins, uh, yen denominated and USD denominated. Uh, PayPal, I know they're, they're getting some bad press for laying off uh, like 10% of their workforce yesterday, but the, the stablecoin is now 300 million outstanding, seeing good transfers on there. Um, if there's a weak part of the market, it's it's Bitcoin miners, which continue to underperform on our work. They they still look kind of expensive uh, on a market cap to proven reserves uh, ratio, at least relative to the last six months or so. Uh, and then like Ethereum and, and L2s, ETH, ETH made what looked like that capitulation bottom versus Bitcoin right around the launch of those ETFs. It's since given back about half those gains and Ethereum L2s are are really underperforming. Uh, uh, Matic just laid off 19% of their staff this morning, despite the huge, well, not huge numbers, but big growth coming out of Farcaster, uh, the the social media platform, which is built on the Optimism stack, uh, you know, that that hasn't helped, say, OP token. Uh, So still seems to be uh, quite a bit of, uh, you know, bearishness around around ETH uh, and its EVM uh, peers. And what's your stance on an ETH ETF, uh, James Matthew? Has that changed at all over the last couple of weeks? Uh, nothing's nothing's changed. I mean, this is extremely unpredictable uh, regulator who's willing to flout uh, laws and norms to achieve political outcomes. So it's very hard to predict uh, what they're going to do in in May. Uh, James? James, I just wanted James, to right, add. I was talking with the SEC on Monday uh, via public litigation. We've got a case against them on whether ETH is a security or not, or in the Ninth Circuit. And, you know, they can, as you said, they can change their mind tomorrow on a dime. But as of Monday, they said, we haven't made a decision on Ethereum being a security or not. We don't have to make a decision. We can do what we want when we want. So that's their official position. Again, it can change on a dime. And you know, technically, you don't have to be a non-security to be in an ETF, but that was kind of an update as of Monday. That's awesome. To he- that's interesting to hear, I guess I should say. Um, I mean, I'm of the stance, and I've said it on these spaces before, uh, the SEC's positioning over the last few years is that they are not going to call ETH a security. Um, they've allowed the CME futures for Ethereum to operate as commodity futures, which if they if they wanted to, they could have pushed for them to be securities futures which would have given them oversight into the CME uh, Ethereum market. They did, they did that a couple more times with options on the CME and micro future and like other futures related to um, Ethereum. Then they approved the Ethereum futures ETFs. So my stance is broadly speaking that like the path of least resistance, I'm with, I'm with kind of what Matt was hinting at. Uh, we have an outline here of like how these things should go. If you just like, <laughs> if you don't miss the forest for the trees uh, and you take a step back from a high level, they probably should approve these things. That said, everything that Fred and Matt just said kind of comes back. And if the SEC really wants to, there's ways they can probably delay this, kick this can down the road more. Um, There is no court case in front of them. Um, That said, I do think it happens within the next two years, year to two. I would say probably it would happen by the end of 2025 at the latest in my view. So our odds, I, I need to write this. I need to do some more work on correlation analysis between the CME market for Ethereum and, and actual spot, spot Ethereum. Um, so I'm going to be doing that over the next week or two to like really fine tune our odds, but we're probably around, we, we think it's more likely than not that they will be approved this year. Um, that said, there's plenty of opportunity in ways that Gensler and the SEC can kind of use political reasoning and, and even if reasoning that won't hold up in court, it can, it can delay things further. 
But overall, my view since this past summer has been the SEC is kind of like pivoting in their um, their sites from being on Bitcoin and Ethereum to just basically like the, I think they're gonna they're not gonna wage war against Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, like I hinted at, if they wage war and start to call Ethereum security, they're gonna have to go against the crypto industry in some regards and also CFTC, um, which I don't think they want to do necessarily. Um, so I, I think the, the path of least resistance is likely that they'll approve these things in May. Um, but we're only at like 60, 65 percent odds um, if I had to put a number on it. So I think if you want to understand the SEC's current posture on Ethereum, you get a pretty significant clue in Gary Gensler's statement from the, the Bitcoin spot ETF launch, which is, listen, we don't like this. It's bad. We were had our hands tied by the courts. I think at this point, the SEC realizes it's probably a losing argument to claim that Ethereum is a security, basically for the reasons that were set out in the 2018 Hinman speech that, you know, courts have seemed amenable to that reasoning. The CFTC has certainly uh, jumped on that reasoning, even though I think the CFTC is probably going to fight the SEC on stable coins, and that that's going to be a, a separate battle. But on a th- on Ethereum, I think the SEC basically has conceded as a legal matter that ETH at this point in the secondary market trade is not security. The reason why Gary Gensler is so reticent to say anything about that in congressional hearings, and the reason I, I think they are not going to roll over on this and just come out and say it absent a court ruling, is that not about Ethereum itself, but they don't want to signpost here is an SEC approved way to go from being a security to not a security. Because the minute they do that, every other token is going to try to make exactly the same argument. And, you know, it's going to make it a lot easier for them to do that. Whereas if there is a, you know, maybe sufficient decentralization is a thing, maybe it's not, maybe utility tokens are a thing, maybe it's not, that's a much better battleground for the SEC to fight the important battles it sees against Coinbase and Binance and, and you know, all the tokens named in those lawsuits. Um, and, and they don't want to, you know, it, it just makes their life a lot harder if they come out and say, we endorse the Ethereum is able to become not a security theory. Dave? Right, Matthew. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say that like one other thing about the the potential for a spot Ethereum ETF is that if it is if it were to be approved in the same trust structure that the Bitcoin spot Bitcoin ETFs were approved, we don't see any way to pass along staking rewards to the end buyer. So it's probably a a less attractive product uh, for the end user. So uh, I, before that's actually a really important point, but I wanted to go back to some math. Uh, so I'm sitting here looking at my coin route screen. And one of the things that is unarguable post Bitcoin ETF, there've been a few effects. We were talking about the CME, the actual correlation and uh, of the CME futures to spot has gone dramatically higher since the ETF. Now, why is that true? It's true because the volatility of the spread from spot Bitcoin to spot futures has dropped dramatically. It used to be, I mean, literally the week, two weeks, three weeks before the Bitcoin ETF, you would see movement from somewhere around, well, it depends on the day because it's, it's a fixed point in time, but you would normally see, you could have 100 basis points in variance of how the spot of how that 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 spread would move today there's there's 12 basis points in variance it's it's literally not quite an order of magnitude but on average about half an order of magnitude less variance in the spread that is extraordinarily meaningful and that is incredibly bad for Gensler's case, because effectively the Bitcoin ETF, by normalizing the way markets work, creating less speculation in the futures, people doing it in the ETF, etc., means that it becomes a lower volatility uh, uh, instrument, which is literally the opposite of what he was hoping to see. And it means that when you go to court and you want to argue on the Ethereum ETF, it's like, well, wait a minute, last time we did this, this is what happens. So yeah, it might very well be that the Ether ETF doesn't have quite the correlation because of the speculative flows. But the absolute reality is, is that the, it's very, it's very conclusive that allowing ETFs will allow that 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 futures product to be less of a speculative vehicle uh, and create less disruption. So that's really important from the perspective. It's also just from for Mario because he always likes to know these things. Uh, the fact is, is one of the, the best signs for an impending bull market 
is low volatility and less speculation. Because generally, when there's more speculative froth, that's when you think you're topping. You know, at this in this trading range where we are, we are seeing a very uh, a spring being coiled is is all I will say, and that's worth the discussion for another day. But I just wanted to make the point for the lawyers: look at that difference in correlation, and I'm quite confident that that's going to continue, and I think that's going to end up in in courtroom arguments as well. James, yeah, I mean, th- so I. That what Dave just said, I haven't actually looked at. It's one I need. To, I, one of the things I want to look at. So I'm fascinated. I'm, I can't wait to go actually look at the numbers because I'm a bit of a nerd myself, which I'm going to do in the next few days. But um, the the one thing we had we had said to the SEC as far back as 2020 was, look, trust the ETF wrapper in the ecosystem around the ETF more than you distrust crypto and DeFi, which is kind of just is what Dave just basically said is what happened, right? Um, so my, my, my overall thing is like what, what Matt was talking about, does Gary really want to go potentially go back to the court, potentially in front of the same judges in a very similar situation after getting his hand slapped pretty hard by that same DC circuit court, um, and just try to argue like little minutia differences between the way that the CME market works versus the Bitcoin CME market and these other things. Like it depends, like does how politically motivated is this? Um, is Gary going to be okay taking another loss in court, or is it just easier to be like, all right, we know how this is going to play out, and I'm just going to, I'm just, we're just going to approve these things. I tend to lean towards the second part because it just really is not a good look to take those losses in court. Like he doesn't want to talk about it in interviews. He says we're going to listen to the courts. You can see it in his voice. Like it's not something he really wants to do. So that's why I go back. I'm probably never going to be below fifty percent unless we see some serious changes. But we'll also have more information based on what the SEC is doing in the coming month or two. Right? There's going to have to be some comments that come back in the next two months um, if these things have any shot of getting approved in May. And that said, one thing that we were talking about with Bitcoin is these things could get approved in May and it could be a, uh, there could be a gap between when they actually list, which wasn't the case with the Bitcoin ETFs, but theoretically still could be a case for, for spot ETH ETFs. So there's another way that they can kind of kick the can down the road. So there's a bunch of options that the SEC has at their disposal. Anyone saying they know exactly what they're going to do is, is lying to themselves, in my opinion. So, James, I think for the reason you just said, Gensler's not going to want to fight the correlation argument or the market surveillance fight. Like, I think that one is, you know, that one's lost. I think there are two differences with the ETH ETF. One is what we already talked about on the securities loss side. I think we've covered that pretty well. But then there's this third difference, which I, I honestly don't know how good a legal argument this would be for a rejection, but I think it's a it's practically important, which is the difference between a proof of stake asset and a proof of work asset. And I think there are all sorts of question marks about you know governance on the Ethereum network if you were to have huge inflows to spot ETH ETFs, where overwhelmingly it's going to be custodied by Coinbase and overwhelmingly uh, it's going to be within this ETF wrapper from a small number of issuers. And what decisions uh, the those parties get to make or the people who hold the shares of the ETF, and then what to do about staking or staking rewards, right? Are these things going to be yield-bearing instruments? Right, you could do that through an ETF, but that gets weird. And are the dividends in kind? Are they reinvested and held by the ETF? Um, I think there are just many more sort of practical questions around uh, ETF wrappers for a proof of stake instrument that the SEC, I think, could theoretically use to draw a distinction between this and the situation with the Bitcoin spot ETFs. I think that uh, that all makes perfect sense. Uh, I, I like what James said last, which is that nobody can tell you with any conviction what's going to happen here, which I think makes reasonably handicapping it in the 60, 65% to, to make a lot of sense. I wish we still had uh, Mario. I wish we still had Simon here because we didn't really dig into the uh, Celsius bankruptcy. But, uh, you know, I guess uh, we can do that on another day. Anybody else have any thoughts here on the maybe on the F- yeah? Go ahead. No, no, maybe if anyone can give a quick recap of the FOMC meeting uh, yesterday as well. Um, I know it's nothing too exciting. It would be good to give a, a very brief overview. I've got here. I just opened it up. Um, our guy, the Cobasi letter, should have invited him. Give a quick summary. I'll read out a summary, and anyone who wants to add to it, be a good final point to discuss before wrapping up the show. So Fed leaves rate unchanged. That's the fourth meeting they leave it unchanged. They do not expect to to cut rates until, quote, greater confidence inflation is moving to 2%. 
So I'm not sure whether that means that structurally high inflation is not a thing and or being too hopeful. Number three, highly attentive, in quotes, to inflation risks with economic uncertainty. Number four, job gains have moderated but remain strong. Number five, upcoming policy will be based on incoming data. Six, Fed sees evolving outlook while balancing risks. Um, so essentially, what Kobesi is asking there, are they backtracking on their pivot? Um, I'm not sure. I think everyone's got different perspectives on it. Scott, have you, have you gone through the, were you listening to the meeting yesterday? No, I, I was obviously predisposed. So, you know, the, uh, the meeting from my very brief understanding and Dave, we, we talk about this like uh, every Monday, what's going to happen was exactly what we said we thought would happen, which is that nothing, you know, they would not obviously uh, raise or reduce rates. They would pause, continue to pause, but that Powell would be less dovish than everyone expected. Like there's literally no reason in my mind that they would pivot now. Right. If everything's as healthy as they say, why wouldn't they just keep it at this level and remain delayed? So I think the fact that the market was expecting three cuts last year and a March cut, which is now being moved to a May cut, I just think they're going to keep doing nothing. Yeah, so what do I? You, uh, your thoughts on the, the the whole narrative of structurally higher inflation, just accepting that inflation will not hit two percent? Do you think it's a possibility? And did the speech give any indication of that? I'm not sure, David, if you listen to the speech, but maybe Scott, do you think it's a possibility? Anything's possible. Uh, there's a lot of people much smarter than me who think that that uh, is viable, but I don't think that that's what they're saying. I mean, I think they're saying we want to get this to 2%, and mm. that's why I don't think they're going to cut. Dave, you might, I, I didn't listen to the entire speech. I mean, Dave, did you give it a more thorough list? I mean, look, the words they're using are what you would expect them to do. I mean, the market is basically pricing, you know, the one month, the six months is down like a quarter. So, and that sounds right. I mean, I, I, my thesis for all year, I have no reason to believe it's changed, is they're going to do everything they can to go from restrictive to neutral uh, as the general election uh, gets swinging. And, I, and that's more or less what the market is saying. It's not surprising. All of that is true. The real question, and it's is the question is is there something in the system that's going to break because it's not the stock market that they care about what they care about is the banking system and so that's the issue will there be something that's breaking is the potential and i was reading this morning the thought process of 1.2 trillion in unrealized losses in commercial real estate something they're going to need to paper over that's really the question, because at the end of the day, they they care more about uh, preserving the integrity of the system than anything else. They won't say that. That's not their mandate, but that is what how they do. So, you know, we talk about it with James all the time. The second message is they need to manage the long rate, long end down. They just need it to be this way. So today, you know, they're they're happy to see the long bond, you know, up almost a point and the yield down, you know, you know, three quarters of a point. You know, it's it, of, a, of a, a percentage of a point. The fact is, that's what they need. So none of this is surprising. You know, it's all kind of, you know, William Faulkner, sound and fury signifying nothing. I mean, anyone who thinks that, that anything changed yesterday, you know, they're crazy. Matthew? Totally yeah, agree. Dave, those are good points. Like, they've got a very blunt tool. The Fed has a very blunt tool with these uh, interest rates. And the... There's very different things going on in the economy. I, I posted something on X yesterday. It was two charts that both go back 50 years. And one was the average rate that Americans are paying on their credit cards. It's at an all-time high. And the second chart was the average interest rate that U.S. corporates are paying on their liabilities. And that is an all-time low. So it, nothing is is bad enough to to have the Fed change their blunt tool usage right now. But there is likely to be, I think, per Dave's comment there, like something will blow up. You, you, you had it yesterday with New York Community Bank overnight, a Japanese bank, Alzora, uh, announced a, a huge loss from U.S. commercial real estate. Uh, if that part of the economy gets to be enough of a problem, they're going to end up directing that blunt tool or more specialty uh, liquidity mechanisms uh, in order to stem that. And, and that's when Bitcoin will, will react, I think. James? James? 
Yeah, I mean, when you when you look at interest rates, the argument for why people think they should cut is essentially that inflation is coming down, like all the numbers are showing it down, and nominal interest rates are real interest, the real interest rate plus inflation, right? So essentially, because inflation is coming down, their policy is technically becoming more and more restrictive, right? And they don't necessarily there. We, we we keep hearing about a soft landing. That's the ultimate goal. Um, so our. I, this is like a little bit out of my realm of, of expertise, to say the least, uh, but I sit next to our rate strategists, and they've been calling more for a May, June, July um, cut, and they were against any mention of a March cut. So it's not a done deal yet, but they've been, they've been on that bandwagon for a while now, and I tend to just listen to them because they've been more right than they've been wrong. Um, but yeah, that the that the argument for why people thought they should cut earlier is is basically because their rates are de facto becoming more restrictive as inflation goes up. But as everyone else said, things are looking pretty good right now based on pretty much any economic metric you use. Obviously, you can you pick pick and point at like many different things here and there, but for the most part, in the aggregate, things are looking pretty good. And I think Powell is just going to keep waiting um, to see when he really has to do something. But ultimately, he, there there are going to be cuts um, in the next few months. Yeah, there will be eventually. William? Yeah, I just want to make one observation on the where we are with the Bitcoin ETF. Uh, one number I'm keeping in mind is that right now, uh, it's about sitting at 3% of the total Bitcoin uh, cap. And uh, traditionally, ETFs take on about 14% of the segment that they are participating in. So what we need to look at is how long will it take for the Bitcoin ETFs to, to reach that 14% equilibrium or average, let's say. Um, and, and that means there is another $100 million, billion potentially uh, out there or about about 2.2 million bitcoins uh, to to get there. So that that's the question now: is how long will it take to to reach that that number? That's what we should look at: is is the growth of of the ETF shares of the total market. Cool. I think we've covered everything. So yeah, we did. It's been a slow part of the cycle, but there's still. I'm one of the few people. We're being slow. We just had. We just. Uh, I find it really we're interesting we're still to talk about the ETF. So I'm happy. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how it's slow. We've got ETF inflows. We got an FOMC meeting yesterday. We have FTX saying they're going to repay all customers. We had XRP. Some people say XRP was hacked, which it wasn't hacked. But we had the. I think one of the the founders or the executives or the CEO. Yeah, Chris Larson. But as well, it hacked. Yeah. Oh, Chris, oh, there you go. I didn't know it was Chris. Um, got his wallet hacked. Um, so I don't know how that's a slow day because the market is not going I guess crazy. it's because we don't, you know, I don't get the adrenaline pump from like the oh, huge, I got, I, I saw oh my God, news. kind of news. Hey, you got to, I know you love talking about BitBoy. BitBoy stopped his show. I saw it in our back channel. Let me go back to our yeah, back channel. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have a no BitBoy policy, but in this in this case, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll crack one with you. I actually, I was surprised by it. I don't really know the details, but uh, I saw that he was, you know, winding down his show which obviously is the new show because his uh he lost control of the original company but it doesn't, but i was really surprised but, there was one thing that struck but, me that i think is worth talking about he said it was costing him i think twenty five thousand yeah. dollars a week to produce the show i'm like bro i could produce a show for like five years with twenty five thousand dollars this you, is just turn weird. on your camera dude like you're good you i know free that's what surprised me that's why i wanted to bring it up because he said so he said he's spending a hundred thousand dollars a week or a month Legal fees. Let me see. How, yeah, hundred k. Another twenty five thousand a week on pr- producing his show, and I'm like, dude, like I'm in, my, I'm literally, I do it in my house. I have a desk. I, just, I put yeah, on some lights is... behind me. I'm not saying my quality is so high, but like, yeah, I, I think he could still make a show happen where anyone could on an exceptionally low budget. But do you think this is? I've seen this. Apparently, he said the ten minute video has garnered eighteen thousand views. We've got lawyers coming out. Let me have a look at his channel. But I'm just curious in something like me and you are interested in because we're in a media game. But it's uh, I'm just looking here on his views. So if you go to his videos, it's seeing the one 14 hours ago, 45,000 views a day ago, 25,000, 11,000, 3,000. The numbers That's are not a very bad. viable business. I think the question is probably if he's been, and, and I don't like, I have nothing against Ben at all. To be very clear, we're just speaking of this as third, you know, from a third party perspective. I wonder if he just can't get sponsors because of all the volatility of the past, you know, few months for him. That's a very maybe, good point. Maybe there's no path to profitability. Is, there might just how, not be a path to profitability. 
Houses uh, volatility houses, is a very kind way to put that. I, I houses, speak kindly of people, Zach. What can I say? Houses, um, it's just between me and you, Scott. Let me mute the audience. Okay, the audience can't hear us anymore. Houses reputation now because I haven't, you know, I'm not too deep in the space as I was a year, a year and a half ago. Is it has it improved since that fallout with the um, BitBoy brand, or it's gotten worse? I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, and that's just anecdotally from an outside perspective. But I think that uh, you know, people probably struggle unless it's his core audience to you know, view him as what he was uh, before quite a few of these things happened. This, it would have been good to I, have I will that. say, I will say he sent one of the most legendary tweets in history. Not, not that I'm praising this, but I believe he sent a tweet unimaginable to most human beings where he announced that he was divorced, getting his wife was divorcing him and tagged her and then also tagged his mistress in the same tweet said he was going to remain with her which i thought was uh pretty wild holy shit man uh, okay so i didn't know about that also so for a person who doesn't want to talk about bitboy you seem to be following a lot of the news there but the wasn't it's, it's there a impossible back and forth? To avoid. <laughs> yeah oh plus yeah you've got your feed is all crypto but isn't wasn't there as well um a um we had his mistress on one of our shows, by the way, I think when we were talking about his fallout. Cassie. Um, Cassie, yeah. She, she, I think she was one, one of our spaces. But the, the um, uh, wasn't there also a bit of back and forth with him and Ran? Something about children in Thailand, something like, or, or, or traffic, child traffic or something? Uh, oh, God. I can't Did you see that one? Uh, yeah, uh, he tweeted something <laughs> to the effect that Rand was like the head of a child trafficking ring. <laughs> I, can't, I can't make this shit up. But what, James, are you sure you're putting your hand up on this topic? You're more than welcome to chip in. James <laughs> I wouldn't oppose you. I just wanted to comment on what Will said about um, the about you know, that, that ship has sailed. That, 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 that ship has sailed. What, what, do, what do you know about about 1.5 about just under two percent of the above ground gold so it's it's that's where we're so we're bitcoin etfs are already above that cool i think this is it in terms of news by the way i just uh, the people one was just too interesting the rest was etf focus as you're going through our group uh there's obviously the ftx news and let me see if there's anything else we missed um any uh, we talked about binance briefly zach's yeah zach uh, in terms of cz did you check when um uh, when we'd be able to know when the the hearing is? No, I don't know the exact date on that. Oh, okay, I think someone said it was in March. Um, so we have here, Binance is sued by families of Hamas victims. Oh yeah, the, my team tweeted about it. So Binance was actually sued. Binance and I think it's two other countries. Can't remember. They were sued by families of Hamas victims. Apparently, Hamas used Binance to fund to get some funding to get some donations. It wasn't a big amount, but that's the allegation there. Um, but I think this is it. So the news, and we, we talked about Jupiter yesterday. Scott, I'm not sure if you listen. Uh, it was like a big airdrop of a Dex, like the, and then the brand, planet. It's got a really <laughs> big red spot on it. It's very the, interesting. The, actually, we want to. My team was actually asking me yesterday if I could connect them to Jupiter. They couldn't reach out to them. If anyone knows Jupiter, they're the Dex that launched on Solana. Please hit me up. I uh, would love an introduction. But otherwise, I think this is it. Uh, we can wrap the show, and we'll see everyone tomorrow. Okay. See you tomorrow. Thanks. Bye, everyone.